Hi friends, welcome. Today we're here, gonna, we're gonna talk about FIRE, which we talk about a lot on this podcast. Of course, FIRE is the acronym for Financial Independence Retire Early. Before we start, one thing I wanna emphasize is that you don't have to RE when you FI. For example, my guest today, who I'll bring on in just a minute, he didn't add RE to his FI as soon as his assets covered his expenses. In fact, he achieved financial independence at age 39, but continued to work for another four years for various reasons. One was that he enjoyed his job, and it's probably something that we should talk about. I enjoyed my job too, so I can totally relate. It's a lot easier to achieve financial independence when you enjoy your work. And by, by achieving financial independence, what you've done is given yourself options, and having options is a beautiful thing. So just using what he was able to do as an example of what I'm talking about, he, he downshifted his career to part-time work before fully retiring a few months ago. And I'm glad he did because the fire ranks need more men like him. He's one of those guys who I think will make an even bigger contribution to the world, to humanity, by way of early retirement than he did even as a physician. So let me give him a proper introduction. My guest today is affectionately known as POF. Leif Dahlin is the purveyor of Physician on Fire, which is a personal finance website that he created to inform and inspire physicians and patients. Patients, that would include you and me. And I'm a regular reader of his blog. I've also referred several of my friends to his site, not just physician friends, but those with big incomes. And to that end, I would say whether you're making big money or you aspire to someday, I highly recommend checking it out. His writing is very insightful. And it's why I'm really looking forward to this chat. So let me bring him on. Welcome to the Man Overseas Podcast, buddy. How are you? I'm doing great, Brad. And thank you for that, that very kind introduction. You've, you've really set high, lofty expectations, I think, not only for the next uh, hour or so that we're chatting, but for the rest of my life now, <laughs> I have to live up to That's doing I... something uh, you know, more powerful and meaningful than I did in my physician career. So, so thank you for that. But also thank you for staying up late. I don't know, maybe your bedtime isn't the same as mine, but we're 12 hours apart. Where I am in Mexico, it's 10, 19 a.m. Where you are in Thailand, it's 10, 19 p.m. And I would be getting comfortable and getting ready for bed. So thanks for <laughs> staying up late to have this conversation. No problem, man. I'm, I'm honored to have you. I, I do wonder, are we on exact opposite sides of the world? Like you think if you put a uh, a line straight through the earth. Does that mean because we're 12 hours apart that we're exactly on the other side? Well, I'll tell you what, I'll start digging, you start digging. <laughs> we'll see if we uh, cross paths at some point. <laughs> uh, that might get hot. The first time I heard you was on a podcast, actually. You were a guest on Mad Fientist. And I loved yeah. your angle because despite coming at fire from a high income perspective, it doesn't come off pretentious at all. I think it's advice and stories that those who get big, big paychecks need to hear just as well as those who have embraced extreme frugality. I think that, uh, you know, high income doesn't have to mean high spending, you know, and it's all relative. So compared to my physician colleagues, I look quite frugal. Compared to the average, let's say, fire blogger, I look like a bit of a spendthrift. And compared to the average American that has a college degree, I kind of look... I have too much fun writing about and talking about other things, so I hope you don't mind if I stray a little bit from personal finance talk. No, it's good. You know, we're, we're now, you know, traveling 
basically full-time most of the year. And so our lives are going to look quite a bit different than they did when I was just building up that nest egg and, and part of the workforce. So uh, my blog will take a similar path, I think, in exploring more lifestyle and, and travel and, uh, and not, not as much of the, you know, the investing in taxes and things that mattered more when I was working. Fantastic. Well, I'll be following you even more closely then because I'm curious to see what people with more time on their hands, what sort of curiosities they explore because you will find that you have more time to think and, and write about whatever it is that you want to write. And, and it's, uh, it's sometimes you have to constrain yourself. I mean, I, sometimes when I write a blog post, I will write four to 5,000 words and then have to cut it in half and then cut it in half again. Just leave it as is, man. <laughs> I, I, think, uh, I think those are great, you know. Yeah. And I hear Google likes long form content too, but this is not an SEO focused uh, blog or I'm sorry, podcast. So we won't get into that. But um, yeah, I just wrote a, uh, an article. It's a, it's a parable about dividend investing, which I think will be pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, it was a more creative kind of a post than my usual sort of nuts and bolts stuff mm -hmm. that I write about. But it's not yet published? It is not. But okay. maybe when this uh, is uh, actually released, it may be. I think it's going to be November 5th or so that I publish it. Okay. I want to talk about your blog. But first, I thought we would start with your former career because it's very interesting. You were an anesthesiologist, correct? Yes. Okay, so after my first experience with anesthesia, my entire Catholic upbringing was called into question <laughs> because I was like, what I just experienced has got to be what death is like, just a state of nothingness and unawareness. Do you know other people who share that same line of thinking or am I crazy? Um, I'm not going to go so far as to call you crazy, but I've had anesthesia several times and have given anesthesia several thousand times, I suppose. Most people feel like they close their eyes and open them and the proceeding, whether it was 15 minutes or six hours, it's as though time didn't pass. And they open their eyes in the recovery room and say, uh, when are we gonna start? And they look down, maybe they see a bandage and look around and start to get their bearings and realize, oh, we've already started and finished. So uh, that's not a common response and that is pretty interesting. Because you're not aware of the fact that you're not aware, right? Right, which is what I thought death would be after I experienced that. <laughs> I guess, yeah. Okay, so in <laughs> hindsight, you're kind of looking back at it that way. Yeah. I can see that. <laughs> Do you remember an instance at work when your adrenaline spiked? Like maybe your heart rate went way up, something out of the ordinary happened? Because I imagine your job to be very stressful and, and you have to be focused at all times. But, but I imagine that the job is stressful because things can go wrong. Did you ever experience anything that was like, oh, oh, shit? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There were oh, shit moments. Um, I would say every few months or so. And it was somewhat rare because I worked at a community hospital that didn't take care of the the sickest of the sick. We didn't do the open heart surgeries. We didn't do the brain aneurysms. We didn't do the liver transplants and those big cases where those moments happen on an almost uh, you know, regular basis, maybe even daily basis. Um, so I kind of tried to avoid those for the most part. But, you know, when you have, uh, you know, sick babies, you know, coming out that aren't breathing well on their own and, and you've got to get a breathing tube in quickly or their brain is at risk and their rest of their life 
is going to be completely different. Yeah, that's one of those moments. And there were some of those. Um, you know, you've got the difficult airway where the patient is now unconscious and not breathing because you've given the drugs that stop consciousness and muscle, muscle activity. And you need to get a breathing tube, and it's extremely difficult in some patients, uh, particularly with a very large neck and overbite, large tongue, and just finding the vocal cords and getting a breathing tube in so you can breathe uh, can be very difficult, uh, even with different instruments that we have that have uh, cameras attached to them and, and can make all sorts of different angles. Uh, you know, some patients have deformities, have cancers in the neck that moves everything around. And, uh, you know, you get a minute or two and you're struggling to even mask ventilate, just squeeze oxygen in by holding a mask. Yeah, well, that, that's definitely a, a, you know, a gluteus maximus clenching situation where, uh, <laughs> sure, the heart rate can spike and epinephrine is, is flowing throughout the, the arteries and veins. So, yeah, I had those. I didn't like them. Uh, it would take some time to come down from them, but you just kind of had to keep going because <laughs> you don't just take a two-hour break in the day to, like, to decompress from one of those. Do you receive training for that? Like, like to manage your emotions in high-intensity situations like that? You know, that's a good question. Not really. Um, medicine historically has been kind of a, uh, what's the best way to put it? Um, you, you know, you learn, you know, by, by experience and you're supposed to toughen up and, you know, everybody did this before you. So you'll do it too kind of thing. It's changing a bit as people are burning out and, and the kind of, uh, old boys, you know, way of, of doing things, working 72 hours at a time. Like, you know, it used to be, you know, they call residents residents because they used to actually live at the hospital. You know, so things have changed quite a bit. Um, but as far as learning, you know, actually having classes to learn how to, let's say, stay calm in those situations, we didn't have that. We just had the experience of them and watching how other people handled them and handling them ourselves. It's interesting what you say about residents. It reminds me of when I was playing football as an eighth grader and the coaches not wanting us to get a sip of water. And that would be unheard of nowadays, right? So you think they're yeah. they're changing their ways where they're allowing residency students to sleep? Yes. So they, there were some changes about 15 years ago that uh, implemented an 80-hour work week and a 30-hour limit to a shift. And they've gone a bit further with uh, first-year residents. I think maybe 16 hours is the maximum they can work uh, consecutively. So I, that doesn't sound very humane, I think, to most people to say, yeah, we're not going to make you work more than 30 hours at a time, uh, which is the current uh, limit for most residents. Uh, but it used to be a lot worse. What can I say? That's, uh, that's the environment that I grew up in. I read uh, what, the book called When Breath Becomes Air. Have you heard of it or read it? I'm a familiar with it, and I have not read it. But it's a really good read. Yeah, it is wonderful. And it educated me on some of that that I had no clue about. So it's very interesting. Um, so yeah, I, I would imagine your job is stressful and requires a lot of focus. So I have a theory about you. And I want you to tell me what you think. So you are okay. a prodigious creator of content. I will be scrolling Twitter and my wife will be laying next to me and I'll say, POF just published another article. And she's like, how does he do that? And I say, 
I don't know. And she says, he produces way more than you. You, you need to get to work. And so I think to myself, well, I'll bet you it's the anesthesiologist in him where his concentration levels are out of this world. So while the rest of us are constantly distracted, you probably have an ability because of your training to focus for long periods of time and write good articles. That's my theory. That's a, an interesting theory. <laughs> You're giving me too much credit. You know, the way I, I need, usually worked in my anesthesia job was I was supervising multiple rooms, three or four rooms at a time. And there at the most important times and at the beginning every time and seeing every patient beforehand and dealing with issues in the recovery room and running upstairs to place labor epidural and running down to the ER to help with an intubation or a lumbar puncture, spinal tap sort of thing. Anyway, I was all over the place and that's kind of how I handle my blog. I've got 12 tabs open. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm doing these other things. I'm responding to emails. And the only way I actually get work done is to close all that down and say, okay, I'm going to write something. And I do my best work on an airplane because I don't purchase the Wi-Fi and all I can do is write. <laughs> and I have several hours to do that. Um, but the content I put out, so every Sunday there's a recap post, uh, Sunday best. So I'm creating that post, but it doesn't take a lot of concentration. I'm not writing 2,000 words. Um, the Saturday posts are publications, are there... I'm sorry, they're uh, reposts of my White Coat Investor Network partners. So there are four physician personal finance bloggers that we work together and we share each other's past content on Saturdays. Thursdays are guest posts. And so those are written by someone else, reviewed and formatted and edited by me. And the only original post I write each week comes out on a Tuesday. So it may look prolific, but I'm truly writing one blog post per week. Regardless, it's impressive. <laughs> and you said it's a, <laughs> a lot. It does. And I don't have a podcast. That's my secret. <laughs> I don't have to take the time to uh, set up guests and learn about them and record and edit and all that you do. So there, that's the secret. Don't podcasts, I will say podcasts are a lot of work. And like you, my favorite place to write is a plane also. I love 12-hour flights. And when it gets to be the last hour, I'm disappointed because I want more time. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah, well, we got kids <laughs> traveling with us, so the twelfth hour, we're like, oh my gosh, can we just get off this plane so they can run around and and have fewer needs? But, uh, yeah, I, I and your it. your Sunday best is very helpful. So anybody who, out there who is looking for someone to curate personal finance articles, Physician on Fire does a Sunday best where he. I mean, I I would imagine you have to go, you have to read what. 10 times as many articles as you post or five times as many articles as you post. And then you pick what you consider the best of the week, I imagine. And then, like you said, you have to edit them or no, you, you edit the guest posts. You're just curating the best, but that's yep, really yep. helpful. I write a little blurb on the articles that I feature and I do read quite a few. Uh, some of it's, you know, headline skimming or heading skimming, just kind of going through and seeing if, uh, if I think it's a great post or not, but yeah, there's uh, about 10 articles that I feature each weekend. And, and that's a lot of fun. It brings me uh, joy to share those articles with people. And it brings a lot of happiness to the people who are featured because they tend to see you know, maybe several hundred new visitors to their website. And that's always fun for those of us with blogs to have new traffic. Can confirm. <laughs> yes. Reach new people. My, 
Yes. My article about driving a Porsche was shared in your Sunday best and I saw a huge spike in traffic to my blog. So that is much Mm -hmm. appreciated. You said that you, before we started recording, you said that you were in Guanajuato. Is that right? Correct. Okay. So I know that before you, you retired, you did a preview of what fire life would be like. Can you tell me about what you did and how that went? And is Guanajuato one of the places that you went? Yes, as far as um, the preview of fire, I switched to a part-time schedule, as you mentioned in the intro, and I arranged that schedule in a way that I could work a whole bunch of hours, like a 100-hour work week in seven days, and then have the rest of the month off. And so I would be off for three or four weeks at a time, and we took some trips that lasted three to four weeks with our kids to see how that would go. And the first place we did that was Guanajuato, Mexico. And we loved it. And we were not ready to go home after three weeks. You know, our our older son was asking if we could stay for a year. And we said, well, not now because you have school and I have a job. But yeah, maybe we can do that someday. Uh, We didn't have plans to come back here anytime soon. We were actually scheduled to fly into Quito, Ecuador just a few weeks ago. Actually, gosh, not even. 11 days ago, I think it was. Uh, But there was a major uprising and uh, uh, police were being kidnapped. There were fires in the streets and most of the roads were blocked and flights, thankfully, into Quito were canceled because we weren't going to go either way. Um, But the fact that Copa Airlines canceled our flights meant that we got our money back. And on a Saturday, we bought four one-way tickets to Mexico and flew in on a Sunday and found an Airbnb that actually turned out to be great. So all is well that ends well. Um, And we love it here. Guanajuato is a beautiful city. It feels very safe. Uh, It's very walkable because a lot of the cars are in uh, these tunnels underground. And so it's just a really lively place with a a lot of uh, culture. There is music in the air and then people celebrating and lighting off fireworks every night it seems yeah so that's that's how that happened but now uh it's kind of ironic because i did write a blog post calling uh, guanajuato a preview of fire and it turned out to be the first place we actually came after i retired from medicine well lady overseas isn't gonna like hearing what you said about ecuador because we were planning to spend several months there in 2020 so we're gonna have to keep a close eye on that keep a close eye but i wouldn't rule it out. It seems like things are basically back to normal now that they've restored a fuel subsidy. Now that could change again, but I think there are, you know, dozens of countries that are normally quite peaceful and safe that every once in a while have political instability. And, you know, we're going to Barcelona uh, this coming winter for a month, and now they're undergoing some violent protests because they uh, sentenced some people who were part of a secession movement a couple of years ago and put them in prison. And now they're rioting again uh, because there are people that want Catalan to be its own state or its own country, I should say. Yeah, I've been hearing that since I first visited Barcelona in 2014. The The rest of the country outside of that Barcelona area, Catalonia, I guess you'd call it, is so much different. I think that the unemployment rate the last time I was there was like 25% outside of the Barcelona area. Yeah, it's nuts. Yeah. 
Yeah, you're right. Catalonia is the place. Catalan is the language. But you can't go from English to Catalan, but you can go Spanish to Catalan. So if I get really good at Spanish, maybe I can try. But I don't know if that'll happen. Not, not that soon anyway. I'm interested to hear what you said about Guanajuato. We, we liked Guanajuato too. And as it pertains to your kids not wanting to leave, was that because they got so adept at the language and made friends? I wish. Uh, no, we were only here a few weeks and, and we take an hour or two of classes a day and, and do some things on our own. Like I mentioned, Duolingo, which is an app that makes language learning uh, kind of fun. Um, they just love the freedom, I think. The uh, more uh, um, I have lackadaisical, I guess, schedule. You know, it's not get up at seven, get to school by eight, come home at three, get some homework done, practice piano, have dinner read, go to bed. You know, that's kind of the U.S. way of life that we had. And when we're here, you know, we can sleep in, we'll do some reading in the morning, take, go to school for an hour or two. We do homeschooling now, which is mostly independently done by them. And, and we work with them after they've done their work to improve on the things that they may have missed. And the weather is perfect. And they're starting to meet friends. There's a plaza very close to where we're living uh, that kids play in after school and whether they can communicate or not, they can throw a ball to each other. Um, but we've actually met some kids that spent some years in the U S so they're very fluent in English and Spanish. And you know, my hope is that they will start to practice their Spanish with them. Hasn't happened yet, but we've only been here uh, not even two weeks on, on this trip, but we'll be here for at least another month and in Mexico until mid December. So we've got time. Is it important to you to provide a rich cultural experience for your kids? I, I think it's a, a great thing for them. I, you know, I don't think it's like something that every family has to do because some families won't be able to do it in the way that we're doing, uh, at least not with the amount of travel that we're doing. So I think it will be good for them just to be well-rounded and to realize that uh, the whole world doesn't necessarily look like the U.S. or operate the way that we do. So I think it's great for them. And we plan to travel for at least two years with taking summers off and spending them back home in the upper Midwest, um, you know, seeing family and having their own bedrooms and such. But um, yeah, I, I'd like to do four years if they're up for it and, and it's going well with their education. And then our oldest will be high school age. And at that point, we'll probably settle into a, a more traditional you know, high school experience for him. But I don't know, it's four years away. How much of it do you have mapped out in terms of countries to visit? We have Spain coming up after Mexico. I am going to go to Ecuador for one week uh, this November. And then we booked some long cruises. I had a friend, Bob, that I met at the Camp FI, uh, which is a, like a long weekend retreat that I've been to a few times. And he recommended a site called cruisesheet.com, which is awesome. And they have deals and you can arrange by the price per day. So we're actually taking a cruise after FinCon next year and we're going from LA to Shanghai via Japan, North Korea, several stops in China. I think there are maybe 15 stops in 30 days. And then we're going to take a one way back from Tokyo to Vancouver like five months later. So we haven't mapped out the five months in between, but I imagine Southeast Asia will be a part of that. Uh, 
we could think about working Australia and New Zealand into that, although I think that could be a whole different trip at another time. And uh, yeah, what's pretty wide open. <laughs> After that, we still have South America to explore another, you know, another, another year or our you know, six to eight month uh, portion of the year that we set aside for travel. And, um, you know, we also haven't really done a whole lot in Europe other than a, than a week with our kids uh, in, in Paris and a few days in Iceland a couple of years ago. It's like there's more places to be than there are times <laughs> than there's time, even though we have four years, I feel like we're going to run out. And I haven't even mentioned Africa, you know, whole continent uh, that we've not been to and are not sure where or when we might get there. I can completely relate to that. Yes, you do have to make choices, unfortunately. And yeah, you think you have all the time in the world, but then as soon as you, because like we're here for 90 days and mm -hmm. it's half gone and we're like, oh man, we didn't, we feel like we haven't done anything. So <laughs> yeah, you really have to map these things out or it won't get done. So you guys are big fans of Airbnb, right? Like we are? Yes, we have stayed almost exclusively in Airbnbs when we've traveled with our family. It's nice because you can set your filters up to have at least three beds, uh, at least uh, two bedrooms, and you can stay in a you know, comfortable place with a nice kitchen. And when you're staying long-term, that's so much better than staying in a hotel room or even two adjoining hotel rooms. So the place we have right now, it has three bedrooms. Uh, we have a king-size bed. The kids each have a twin-size bed. We cook meals in about every other day, but eating out is really fun and cheap here too. Uh, but yeah, we love it. And when you stay for a month at a time, you get sometimes a 50% discount or more over the nightly rate. And even weekly rates tend to be lower than nightly rates. So you might get a day or two free by saving 10 to 20% on a weekly Airbnb booking. I have not found that to be the same with VRBO. They tend to charge a nightly rate regardless of the length of stay. And it's a little more inflexible. So my first go-to is always Airbnb. And we usually find something uh, that we are happy with there. Those are good points. For listeners, I'm going to share two Airbnb tips with you. One has to do with a concept you might be familiar with only if you're in business, you worked in the business world. But it's called unilateral concessions, which is just a fancy term for when someone gives you something without you even having to ask for it. So for example, when you're looking for a place to stay for an extended period of time, let's say a month, an Airbnb host will usually offer you a discounted rate. So let's say it's, it's normally $80 a night. Well, for, if you stay for a whole month, they might scratch a line through the $80 and say it's only $60 a night if you stay for a month. So without you even having to ask for it, you're getting a stay in their place for, let's say, $1,800 instead of $2,400. So when someone gives you a unilateral concession, you can almost take it to the bank that they're going to be willing to give you more than they've given you without even being asked. <laughs> so a, gr a great negotiating gamut to remember is simply asking a seller or a host if they would be willing to accept a lesser amount. But don't say lesser amount. Say something like, will you accept $1,500? And you will be amazed at how many times people will say yes. Remember, America, we don't have a haggling culture. In fact, we look down upon it, right? So um, other parts of the world, they look down on us for not haggling. They actually think that you're stupid for just accepting their asking price. So it's just something to keep in mind. And Lady O has saved us like 1500 since we started traveling in March. We left the States. 
And she saved us at least $1,500 just by asking. So um, we're going to take that $1,500 and get a really nice place here in a few months. And my other Airbnb tip is if you've never used Airbnb, you can, people, a lot of bloggers provide links where you can get discount codes. So if you go to physicianonfire.com, he's, I've seen several links where you will get $40 off your first stay. So you can take advantage of that. And Lady O has one too on her Instagram, lady underscore overseas. So I like that you use Airbnb. I don't know where we'd be without it. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. Um, <laughs> And yeah, readers, go ahead and use uh, the man overseas or lady overseas links for that. Uh, I've, got, <laughs> I've got people that are using mine, so uh, it's all good. Yeah, it's it's awesome. Um, and I've not really done the negotiating thing. I, you know, I, I feel almost bad <laughs> trying yeah. to give them less money, but I know that's an American thing, yeah. and I need to get over it. Yeah, don't impose your culture on theirs. It's not fair yeah. to them. <laughs> That's a good segue into a money discussion. Many people are discouraged from stereotyping. You hear it all the time. Don't stereotype. Or that's just a stereotype. But something that you've acknowledged on your blog is that doctors are notoriously bad with money, right? Um, Thomas Stanley, the author of The Millionaire Next Door, he said that doctors are under under accumulators of wealth, right? He uses the acronym UAW. UAW, yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. But not you, right? I mean, when did you see a fork in the road and decide that you were going to take it? How did, how did that happen? That's a great question. I think it really goes back to the way I grew up. Uh, my father was a dentist, so you know, a pretty privileged uh, place, uh, you know, house, household to grow up in. But we didn't spend like... Uh, dentist family would be spending. At least it didn't look like it to me. So we uh, shopped at garage sales on the weekends. We stopped at thrift stores uh, when we were driving around. We uh, learned to just appreciate the value of, uh, of money and not to waste it, which isn't to say we didn't spend it. My parents always did have a lake cabin up north. They could afford to do that because they saved money in a lot of different ways. I remember the first time we went to Disney World, I was 14 or 15, and we flew there, um, but we stayed in a condo, very similar to Airbnb now, although it was probably found via a classified ad or something, because this would have been 1989 or 1990. And then we uh, came back by rental car, because the rental car companies like to move their cars up north in the spring. And so, you know, that probably cost us next to nothing to come home. So even like our, you know, big trips, like Disney World, which is expensive, were done in an affordable way. So I learned to appreciate the value of a dollar and to not be afraid to spend money, but also try not to waste money. And I think I still uh, live by those principles. And so once I became a physician and was making 300, 400,000 a year, which is crazy money, I didn't spend all of the after-tax money, which would have been, you know, maybe $250,000 a year, I wouldn't know what to do with that much money. I mean, I could find ways to spend it, but it would feel wasteful. And it wouldn't make me happy. I'd, I'd feel bad watching all that money go out the door, knowing that it wouldn't be invested in growing and, and doing what we want money to do for us, uh, which eventually I figured out was to give me this newfound freedom that I have now to be anywhere in the world. And, uh, and my only, you know, quote unquote job is to keep doing this blog that I've been enjoying to uh, doing for the last you know, three and a half, almost four years. Mm. At what age did you get married? 
I was 31, just after residency. I met my wife um, down at the University of Florida where I did my residency, and she had graduated uh, from undergrad and was in grad school and working at the hospital at the time. So I imagine you reading Mr. Money Mustache's blog one night and getting really excited and going downstairs and saying, honey, we are going to make some changes financially. <laughs> Is that about how it went? Um, you know, we didn't have to make any changes financially, but Mr. Money Mustache was the first person to open my eyes to this whole concept of financial independence. And when I found his website via a, uh, I think it was Market Watch article, I you know, ran the numbers and I was like, oh yeah, uh, we're, we're pretty much financially independent now. And I, you know, we uh, had moved to this town in Northern Minnesota, very close to my parents. And I was very happy in the job and, and I was like excited that my son could start kindergarten and graduate high school in the same program, just go all the way through with the same kids, just like I did, just like my brother did. That was the plan at the time. And then I figured out that work was optional and well, I didn't want to leave work just right then and there, but I thought, well, maybe a few years from now we'll be very comfortable, you know, as far as our net worth and multiple of expenses and whatnot. Maybe, maybe that would be pretty exciting. So yeah, I had a conversation with my wife after I had made a spreadsheet, of course, with all these projections and where we would be and, you know, how we could have maybe 40 or 50 times spending when 25 times is probably enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we, we started talking about it about a year, a little over a year later, I started the blog to really flesh a lot of these things out because when I look up uh, a topic to write about, I tend to learn a lot more about it and uh, have to think a lot about what our future might be like and how much money do we really need and what are the pitfalls, what could make this plan not work. And so yeah, it wasn't until, like you said, just a few months ago, about four years after I figured this whole thing out, that we actually took advantage of the FI we had and and uh, retired, at least retired from medicine. How many of your friends who are physicians are now on this fire path that weren't before, that, that you've inspired? That's hard to say. I was anonymous for most of the... Uh, blogs lifetime it's only in the last year and a half or so that i've had my name out there so my my physician friends didn't really know i was doing this and i think a lot of them probably still don't but i've made a lot of new friends via the blog that that are physicians and that are not physicians and uh i've definitely inspired a number of them to make some changes in the way that they are living and saving and investing and and hoping to achieve financial independence for themselves, not necessarily just to retire and leave it all behind, but but to work in a, a different way. Maybe they uh, won't need the money so they can work and research and do teaching and you know, take jobs that pay less, work less, smile more. No, that's a Hamilton. Um, <laughs> talk less, smile more. No, um, yeah, so anyway, I, uh, I don't know that I've changed like my close friends from medical school's uh, ideas about money, but several did reach out to me once they maybe saw my my name or picture out there in an article somewhere, I said, oh, this is really cool what you're doing. Yeah, we're kind of going along that same path. So uh, if I didn't inspire them, I, I at least uh, you know made them feel like they're not the only ones that are saving their money rather than 
spending it on luxury autos and million dollar homes. <laughs> That's great. I asked the question because it's hard for me to now find a friend who's not investing in real estate, but they'll never tell you that, that you're the one who inspired them, or at least most of them don't. Yeah, so yeah. Cool. Very good. Good for you. Yeah. And I was interested to hear you talk about your upbringing and how that shaped your views on money because one of the retirement side gigs that I started was just coaching some people to help them achieve fire. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions that I asked them early on is what influences they've had that have shaped their views of money. And I just took on a new client last week. And on that first call, he told me that his dad risked everything that they had, $1.3 million about 10 years ago on a penny stock. And I'm like you, I'm, I'm very, uh, very candid. I, I said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And mm-hmm. he was kind of taken aback by that. And then we started going through his finances and come to find out he doesn't have any assets or anything, but he has a TD Ameritrade account, which he has some individual stocks. <laughs> I said, okay, mm-hmm. man, we're, we're not doing that. We're, we're going to start from yeah. zero here. So, um, and I know that one of our early email exchanges, I told you that I have a physician friend that I was sitting at a ball game with and we started talking about personal finances and he told me that he was sitting on over a million dollars in cash with no investments. So I right. Said, Isn't that just amazing? It's crazy. Yeah. You know, I was in a t- exchange on Twitter with, with some of my critics and I, I tend to engage the, uh, the quote unquote trolls that uh, basically our financial advisors just hate on everything that a physician uh, finance blogger says, even though if they actually read the stuff, they probably agree with 98% of it. They don't read it. They only read the tweets. Well, I imagine they're hating because you're a threat to their livelihood, right? I mean, they hate. Yeah. yeah well, oh no, we are. So this is what it was. It, it was, you know, I said, you don't need a financial planner to do, um, a basic budget to, <laughs> there you go. Uh, decide on an, a simple asset allocation to, uh, pay down student loans like this is basic personal finance and they wrote back well yeah this is all basic so you know everybody knows this stuff i'm like no they don't have you seen how physicians you know many of them manage their money and and you know what if it wasn't for the white coat investor and and people like me and and others educating they would not know this stuff right so it's not a bad thing that we're teaching this and they're like oh that's elementary i'm like yes and you know, most of us start in preschool. So there you go. <laughs> and that's where I was going with that. That's a good point. They overcomplicate things oftentimes to sell their products. They have to convince us that it's complicated and that we need them and we do not. The number of people, especially really busy professionals that, that want to take the time to learn uh, the things that you and I have learned, you know, unfortunately it's, it's kind of small, but the majority of, uh, people who call themselves financial advisors out there are actually not fiduciary. They're selling products that aren't appropriate. They are pushing uh, front end loaded mutual funds that give them a nice kickback every time they have someone invested in them. And so, yeah, you have to be really careful when selecting a financial advisor. I'm, I'm not anti-financial advisor. I personally do it myself and I encourage everyone to learn enough to do it themselves. Um, but yeah, but there are definitely some people that uh, fall into that former category of the not so good advisors that really don't like what we're doing. Mm, I agree with everything you just said there. Do you share your net worth online or no? I did for a while. And then, you know, there was the uh, 
there was a list on a site called Rockstar Finance that is kind of dormant now, but it was a net worth tracker. And I thought it would be kind of cool to be near the top of that list. And then it became kind of a pissing contest and new names kept showing up with higher net worths. And, and I was like, well, the point here isn't to have the highest, right? The point mm -hmm. is to live the life that you want and I'm going to stop making money. And maybe once my name is out there, that's kind of where I said, all right, since my name has been attached to the blog via some articles out there and whatnot, I'm like maybe, maybe the actual number shouldn't be online anymore. So I, I did take it down. Mm. Um, yeah. So I do give my readers numbers that they could use to kind of work backwards and have a pretty good idea of where we're at. Mm -hmm. For example, I'll say we could spend six figures a year with a withdrawal rate of well under 3%, something like that. So if you understand how uh, the math works for safe withdrawal rates, you would have a pretty good idea of where we're at. I like that. Make them work for it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I looked at but that. At the list. same time, they, you know, if they, if they have no idea, like a lot of doctors think they want $10 million to retire comfortably. I'm like, well, you probably don't need 10 million, right? And so yeah. a few million, yeah, that, that's going to give you a comfortable retirement. Yeah. Well, I remember having a conversation with my old boss who kept saying, if just give me $10 million, all I need is $10 million. And I was like, you need $400,000 a year after your house is paid off and your kids are out of school. Like, what are you spending money on? And I could tell it was something that he had never thought about. Many people have not heard of the 4% rule. Right. And that's what really got me thinking. I, I knew that if I continued doing what I was doing and I had done this math using the rule of 72 in my head and knowing, knowing how much I set aside each year that I would end up with a $10 million net worth sometime before age 60. And I was like, that's awesome. And then once I read more about the fire community and what different people were doing with their own lives, I was like, oh, well, what would I rather do? Have $10 million or do whatever I want with <laughs> what I have now or what I will have in a few years? And so that's kind of how this whole early retirement thing came about for me. It was a realization that I wouldn't do anything differently with $10 million than I would with a third of it. I couldn't agree with you more. When I looked at that Rockstar Finance list, this is the only thing I remember about it. I saw Jay Money's net worth and I was like, wow, I got way more money than that guy. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it's pointless. <laughs> well, he's a millionaire now because he sold Budget It's Our Sexy and Rockstar Finance. Yeah. Uh, and I, that pushed him over a million dollars. Yeah. So good for him. Yep. I might That's have to get in there and see if, see if I can piss a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I don't look at that kind of stuff very often. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it's being updated anymore. The uh, mm. new, newly uh, acquired, uh, the person that acquired it is not really doing much with it at the moment, which is unfortunate because it was a great curation site. Yeah, All right, I'm going to quote you here because it's something I read on your blog that I really liked, and it's applicable across the board, regardless of how much money you make. I think we all make this mistake. You said trying to spend your way out of a frustrating situation only prolongs your misery. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, and I see this oftentimes with uh, physicians who are starting to feel burned out and their, you know, their, their days are long, they're fighting with insurance companies, uh, the patients are non-compliant and nothing seems to be going well. So in the little time they have for themselves, they'll, you know, let's say, go out and buy, you know, maybe a really fancy gun or drone or a handbag or 
book their next vacation. I do think vacations are important. Obviously, travel is a huge part of my life. But at the five star Ritz Carlton for 20 grand for one week. And those kind of things, all that does is really just when I say prolong your misery, well, it, it puts you further from financial independence for one thing, right? Because you're spending thousands of dollars on something that might give you short term, you know, a little burst of dopamine, a little bit of happiness, but over the long term, not much, right? So, you know, if you've got a closet full of handbags, you probably don't need another $600 handbag, right? <laughs> if, <laughs> if you don't have much time for yourself because you're working so hard and making a lot of money, well, maybe make less, spend less, have more time for yourself, you'll be happier. I, that quote, I, I don't know exactly the context in which it was taken out of, but that's what I think of when I think of trying to spend your way out of misery that just really doesn't work. So for higher income folks, what percentage of their income do you think they should live on? So yeah, my audience is mainly physicians and other high income professionals, most making six figures, if not multiple six figures. So for people in those boats, I say try to live on half of your take-home pay. Now that means pay taxes and live on half of what you bring home. Now, they can get a little complicated when you have some pre-tax investments. Okay, you can figure that in. But, you know, more or less, roughly, live in about half. Use the rest to uh, A, pay down debt, and B, invest for your future. And if you can do that, you know, the math works out, depending on market returns, but with somewhat modest assumptions, you'll be financially independent if you go from broke uh, to FI in 15 to 20 years. Mm-hmm. If the stock market had been down over the past 10 years, let's say the the conference that we were just at had a thousand personal finance bloggers. How many personal finance bloggers would there be if the market had been down over the past 10 years? What do you think? Fewer. 472. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, We all look a little smarter than we are. We all look a little more successful than we are. Um, I don't, I don't claim to, uh, you know, have any particular, uh, you know, financial prowess or prognostication abilities. I take what the market gives me. And fortunately the market has given me, uh, you know, gold, uh, over the last <laughs> 10 years. And I started investing in 2006, uh, you know, at least in, uh, in earnest when I started making real money as an anesthesiologist. And so I was throwing money into the market and it was tanking, right? Um, 2006 was good, but 2007, 8, 9, it was down, 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 down. And I had read books. I kind of knew what the stock market had done in the past. I knew that this time was probably not any different. And so I stuck with the plan. And I'm really grateful that I did because I was buying mutual funds when they were down to half the cost of what they were just a few years earlier or even 18 months earlier. So uh, I do, um, well, I guess I give myself a little pat on the back for not bailing as some people did and locking in losses, but in just uh, believing in the U.S. economy and people um, that are behind the companies that we're invested in and continuing to invest all the way down and on the way back up because that really did help uh, in the long run, you know, to get us to FI within 10 years of finishing my residency. 
you're here. I threw a bunch of money in both real estate and the stock market in 08, 09. And yeah, so it makes it feel like we earned it a little bit, right? Since we kept going and we persevered. If you had to do it all over again, let's say you were 18 years old, knowing what you know now about money and how it works and everything, would you take the same path and go to medical school? That's a tough question. I don't regret doing it. I had a good career and, and you know, it came with some respect. And I, you know, I met my wife because I was in the right place at the right time that uh, my training led me to Gainesville, Florida. I don't know how that alternate you know, universe would, would, would turn out. Um, I guess the better, better way to frame the question, at least for me, is would I recommend my kids go into medicine? And I would let them follow that path if that's where their heart is. But I would also have them understand that just because you'll make good money eventually, you're going to work really hard for it. And you're going to be way behind your peers that are going to start earning money at 22 and 25 after their college degrees or other professional degrees. And, uh, you know, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything, I don't think. But if I was 18 right now, I don't know that I would go down the same path. Mm. Uh, I don't know. That's kind of two different answers to the same question. I have no major regrets, and yet I'm not sure I would do it all the same if I was starting from scratch, because it is a long haul. You know, I finished at age 30, able to start working as an anesthesiologist, but from age 18 to 30, I worked my butt off, and I worked pretty hard when I actually, uh, you know, had my anesthesia career as well. So, yeah, it, it, there are easier ways to make money, and there are certainly quicker paths to FI if that is the ultimate end goal. I'm impressed that you were able to be in school for, was it 12 or 13 years in total? If you consider residency a school, it kind of is, but you do make, you know, I was making 38 to 41,000 a year as a resident from 2002 to 2006. So uh, you do make some money, but you work a lot of hours for it. It's just a little better than minimum wage and you are still learning and studying all the time. Mm. So it's, yeah, it's like apprenticeship, I guess is probably the best comparison. And you were in the workforce in total about those same amount of years, right? Yeah, that's pretty much uh, symmetric when you look at mm. it that way. About 13 years of work for 12 years of post high school uh, study mm. and training. So yeah, the, the, the math <laughs> isn't great there when you compare that to a four-year or you know, five or six-year engineering degree with maybe a master's degree in there uh, and then working for 10 years, 12 years to become FI. Uh, yeah, I had kind of a one-to-one -one ratio there, whereas you, know, you might have a three-to-one ratio uh, in some other fields as far as working compared to education. Yeah, I bring it up because the physician friend that I mentioned earlier said that he couldn't go down that path, despite the fact that he graduated with no debt, he had help from his parents, but because of the amount of time that he had put into his education was the reason that he wouldn't be willing to go that route, go the, the fire route. Yeah, that's the sunk cost fallacy, right? Uh, right. What, what you've done in the past really has no, no real bearing on the choices you make from today going forward. And so I can identify with, you know, having that feeling. Mm -hmm. But the question I ask myself is, what do I want the rest of my life to look like? You know, and if, uh, if getting up at 5.15 every morning and you know, being called in in the middle of the night isn't the way I want my life to look like, then why would I still do that? 
Um, and again, it, my story is a bit different in that I wasn't pursuing financial independence. I kind of stumbled into it by virtue of living well, well below my means, mm-hmm. uh, even living pretty well, but well below my means. And so it wasn't until I found out what FI was that I knew it was something I had. And then I had to do a whole lot of introspection and, you know, have some heart to heart talks with my wife. And uh, we were a one income household. So my wife has done the majority of uh, the work raising our kids. And, and I was doing the, the work to bring home the money to, to make it all work out. But she saw, you know, how, like you mentioned, my job could be stressful sometimes. And I would miss dinner oftentimes and, and not be there for some of the, you know, important family moments. And so she was totally on board with me, uh, joining her in uh, spending more time with kids and, and just being more present with family. Love that. So you've done some cool things with travelanthropy, right? So in the intro, I talked about how now that you're retired early, you have a chance to make a huge contribution to humanity that, you know, my friend, if he thinks that he's got to continue putting work in because of all of his education, he won't get to, do, he won't get a chance to do things like this. So I think it's really awesome. Can you talk about some of the charitable causes that you're involved with? Yeah. So when I started a website, I was doing so from the standpoint of already being financially independent and telling my readers that I was. And so it didn't seem right to put up advertisements or have affiliate links that could give me referral money to make more money when I'm trying to tell people I don't need more money, right? That that seems counterintuitive and, and uh, greedy. And so I made a charitable mission to donate half of my profits from the website to charity. And I also, with that pledge of donating half, that means I keep half, but having skin in the game makes me work harder. So when I started a website, um, I was starting from the position of already being financially independent and telling people that I was. And so I felt kind of guilty and I felt it would be wrong to just put up advertisements and have links uh, that could earn me money when I'm trying to tell people that I no longer need them to earn money to live this life that we're living. And so I pledged to donate half of my profits from the website to charity. And I also kept half of the profits because having some skin in the game, you know, makes me work harder. That's just part of how I am wired. The profits over the years have grown. And I'm proud to say that uh, they've grown to the point where we're able to support the full-time work of one physician in Honduras at a place that my family and I have traveled to each of the last two years. It's a uh, standalone surgical hospital that uh, is run mostly by volunteers. And I volunteered as an anesthesiologist and my wife and kids helped out around the property and on the uh, ranch where the uh, surgical center is, which is also a children's home. Uh, It's a great organization called One World Surgery, and our website is now paying the salary of one physician uh, that's working there full-time, probably working harder than I ever did. And so I felt really good about making that pledge and making that donation at the time when I was leaving my career, knowing that my website would be supporting the career of another physician working elsewhere in the world where they really truly need, uh, need the work and need the help. That's great. We alluded to earlier how some people have money that they don't know what to do with. And I think some people don't donate to charitable causes because they don't know if it's legitimate. Can you tell people where they might be able to donate if they're looking for a a worthy cause? Well, sure. And I think, you know, it should start with kind of 
thinking about what you want to do with the money you're giving away. What what end do you want to accomplish? Are you looking to help end world hunger? Are you looking to maybe keep the heat on for people in your own city or neighborhood? Uh, you know, you can give very locally. You can give individually, although not in a tax advantage way. Uh, and so you got to think about your goals. But um, you know, there's an organization called GiveWell.org that looks at kind of like where is how can your money have the biggest impact worldwide and and do the most good for mankind i suppose is the way to phrase it and i think that's a great organization and they recommend different organizations or you can give directly to them as they support the charities that they have um, chosen and uh you know the ones you want to avoid are the ones that call you out of the blue because oftentimes Almost all of their costs go to administrative costs, and it may be that the the marketing team is run by a relative of the person that started the charity, and it's it, it can start to look like a scam. Um, so, yeah, look locally if you are inclined to help your your neighbors and you, the community in which you live. Um, also consider the fact that there are many people around the world who are less fortunate just by virtue of where they were born and the uh, circumstances and you know, political situations that they're born into. So um, we're very happy to, to donate to One World Surgery where we have seen firsthand the work that is being done and been a part of the, the team a couple of times. Uh, so it's very personal. And uh, I, I just encourage people to, to give when they can um, because that is a, a pretty cool thing to do with money that you don't know what to do with. My wife and I are visiting Yayasan Wijaguna next month and there's That's a link mouthful. yeah there's a link on my website and I know I've told this story before but we found them in 2016 it's a it's an organization that has found kids that were neglected or hidden away for many years due to their Balinese Hindu religion they believe that kids who were born with a handicap were bad in a former life and so oh. they've just started to find these kids and they have a school for them to learn and to grow and to play and to laugh and to it's just a wonderful thing and that experience teaching with my wife was something that really uh, really drew me to her we weren't yet married at that time but to see the effort that she put in she would stay up late at nights so they didn't have any lessons plan lesson plans for us to follow and she would come up with lesson plans up until you know 1 2 a.m and uh, we worked really hard and when we were leaving they surprised us by surrounding us and started singing to us and it's still one of the most special things that I've ever experienced it was like floating like if you've ever <laughs> I had a, somebody mm -hmm. surprised me for my 30th birthday and it was just like this crazy feeling like you're just floating on air. And anyway, so I've only had that feeling twice and that was the other time when those kids started singing to us because they were so grateful. So we're going to get to see them again next month. Again, if you're looking for a charitable cause, Yayasan Wijaguna, and I will also in the show notes put the links that, um, that Leaf just talked about. So excellent, man. That's awesome that you're doing it. Yeah, so, that's fantastic. And that's, you know, kind of like what we did. You you maybe maybe volunteer your time and see firsthand what this organization is actually doing and how people are truly benefiting. And then you definitely know that that's a worthy organization to give to. And if you want to look up the financials, it's all public information. You can go to uh, guidestar.org and see the actual, uh, I think they're called 190 filings, whatever they are, to see how much money the charity is bringing in and how much is being given out to recipients and how much is maybe being spent on not so charitable 
uh, things like marketing and whatnot. So yeah. Yep. Uh, kudos to you for doing what you do. Kudos to you, man. Have you seen Inside Bill's Brain on Netflix yet? I'm not familiar with that one. It's excellent. There's a documentary on Bill Gates and it follows him um, around Africa and some of the charitable work that he's doing. And it is incredible. That dude is such a genius. So I highly recommend it. I love that. Yeah, I, lo I like the whole giving pledge concept that uh, I think hundreds of uh, billionaires have now <laughs> pledged to donate you know, at least half of their estate and uh, to their to charity. And I know, I know Bill Gates is definitely involved with that as well. Cool. So usually toward the end of my podcast, I ask some fun questions. You want some fun questions? I do, man. I do. <laughs> All right. So did you do anything to celebrate when you officially retired a few months ago? Well, we moved. That wasn't necessarily a thing to celebrate. No, you know what it is? It's this, it's this first trip. This is our, our celebration. Nice. Uh, things were really busy at the time when I, I worked my last shift. I, I picked up my son's best uh, friend, or actually he was dropped off at the hospital. Uh, on Monday morning, and I drove 12 hours with a trailer full of stuff over to our, our new house in Michigan, and uh, started unpacking. And so uh, I got to, you know, bring my my son, his uh, best friend, for a week. And then, uh, uh, but no, as far as like finally like celebrating, okay, here we are. I'm retired from medicine. It was coming to Mexico. When you posted the house that you bought, I showed it to my wife because it was. Am I correct in saying it was a $90,000 house? Correct. Yeah. Awesome. So we yeah. were living in an $80,000 house at that time. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. here's my next question. If you were to throw a party, an early retirement party, and or let's say your family, your wife, family threw it for you, friends and family, and they threw it in your backyard and you're having a big party and you can invite all the big dogs. And I'm talking to everybody like J.L. Collins and Mr. 1500, Money Mustache, Jay Money, Chad Carson, they're all there, right? And you can, you can bring back either Tupac or Biggie Smalls to perform. Which one do you resurrect and why? Oh, man. How you live in Biggie Smalls and Mansions and Benzes? <laughs> I got to go with the B.I.G. Yeah. <laughs> nice. um, yeah, probably mainly because um, it's, there's a picture that I put on, on Instagram a few different ways, but I have a notorious B.I.G. pint glass that I tend to drink my beers out of when we're at our cabin. So there's a little caveat. We have our $90,000 house. But we also have a little lake cabin um, that's part of an old resort. And I'm usually drinking out of the B.I.G. glass. Uh, <laughs> and the, the 1500s, actually, you mentioned Mr. 1500, Carl and Mindy, they stayed there and, and uh, Mindy was drinking out of that. And so when I was on the Matt Fiendish podcast, she had rewritten some lyrics to... Uh, uh, one of Notorious B.I.G.'s songs uh, to fit me, which was really a, a fun surprise. I wasn't quite floating, but I was certainly like laughing and having a good time with that. That's cool. I actually met Mrs. 1500 coming down the escalator at FinCon, and the way that we made the connection, she asked me if I knew who Mr. 1500 was, and I said, yeah, I heard him on the Mad Fiantist podcast, and she said, oh, well, mm -hmm. I'm Mrs. 1500. And I said, no way. So that's how I got to know her. Yeah, and that was at FinCon in Dallas, which you were at too, right? But we never crossed paths. That's true. It's a big conference, over yeah. 2,000 people now, maybe 2,500. Yeah, it's growing. Yeah. If, you, if you had to spend 90 days at a time in three different countries next year, what are the top three that come to mind quickly? Man, I only have one year now. Um, I thought we had like four years. But uh, if next year was it, I would spend time in 
I'm going to say Spain because it's already booked and paid for. (laughs) And I really want to check out New Zealand. So I would put that on the list. And let's say we'll come visit you in Thailand because it'll be a lot more uh, inexpensive compared to the money we're going to blow in New Zealand. Kind of average things out. I like that's exactly what we do. So we did do New Zealand. We did the South Island, which I highly recommend. And that's what I was told Mm -hmm. to do is the South Island. It was so expensive. And I can tell you that Chiang Mai so far has been cheaper than any other place we've been. And we've been to places like San Miguel de Allende and Oaxaca. So Mm -hmm. we're going to end up spending less money than any other month. Care to guess how much we've spent this month? I will say for two of you, and this includes lodging and food and and whatnot, entertainment. Um, how about seven hundred dollars? <laughs> oh man, twenty five hundred. <laughs> oh wow, okay, isn't that? Uh, right. no, we live in a high rise condo that's pretty new. It's pretty nice, so it's six hundred and fifty nine dollars a month for the condo, and then we paid for a motorcycle, which is like eighty. We eat a lot of meals out, which is actually cheaper than buying groceries. Um, but now you're making me want to go through and see what else we spend on. So we have a Netflix subscription. Um, you know, all that stuff counts. Phone bills. We count everything. Health insurance, you know, whatever it is. So yeah, 2500 But that's less than we have ever spent. So we're happy about that. And it gives us a chance to spend a little more in the next place that we visit. Which will be Bali. So that's good. If someone dropped $5,000 cash in your lap tomorrow, what would you do with it? <laughs> nothing exciting you know it's it's not it's not life-changing money at this point now 20 years ago i would have had big plans but right now i guess it would go to the savings account and end up in a vanguard index fund very likely wow. i know that's not awesome but it's not <laughs> like i don't have the ability to drop five thousand dollars by just taking it out of savings at the moment and so you know it all kind of goes back to intentional spending and you know what do you value and what i buy an amazing like Bentley if I could. Well, I can do that. I don't want to and I haven't. Therefore, if you gave me the option, I'm just going to say, well, if I, I would have done it already if I wanted to. Yeah. So I know that's a boring answer, but. So you've got 50 $100 bills in your lap and you would actually go to the bank and you would transfer that money to your Vanguard account? Yeah, I, I would. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> honest. That's what I'm looking for. Uh, well, maybe we'll take one of those $100 bills and have a decent uh, family meal, maybe two of them. But there you go. Yeah. yeah. Life is worth the truth. Part of life is living, right? Mm-hmm. Cool. When is the first time because of your blog that you felt a little bit like a celebrity? Oh, that's a good question. I think it was when the white coat investor, uh, he's got a more popular personal finance blog and it's been around since about the same time as Mr. Money Mustache 2011 he started uh, when he reached out to me and asked for a guest post and I'd only been blogging for a few months but I'd been leaving comments on his blog posts and I thought wow well that's a you know an internet celebrity asking me to write for him that's awesome so <laughs> yeah so I did of course and and that helped make uh, make me a little more well known is there an underrated personal finance book that you would recommend uh, yes, one that I don't see talked about too much is How to Think About Money by Jonathan Clements. He was a Wall Street Journal columnist, money columnist for I think 20 plus years. And he, he just really makes money simple, does talk a bit about investing, about budgeting, about happiness, just kind of wraps it all up into one 
pretty uh, small package. It's it's maybe maybe 200 pages, probably not even. You could read it in in one evening or or one flight. I like that book a lot. He's a good Twitter follow. White haired mm-hmm. guy, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. yeah, British originally. Okay. He's got a great accent if you listen to him on a podcast. Yes. Yeah, I didn't know he had a book. I'll check it out. Last question. What are you most grateful for? I'm grateful for my wife and family. Uh, that, you know, that they're really the driving force behind how I'm living my life these days. And, and they bring me very much, uh, very, very much joy. And, and I'm just grateful to have them in my life and to be able to travel the world with them now. That's a great answer. I know that you had something like 6 million visits to your blog last year. Is that right? And not that many. Uh, we had three and a half million page views. And so lifetime, maybe we're, we're at over 6 million page views. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I had seen that 6 million number somewhere. It's very impressive. Yeah, that's man. probably what it was. Thanks. Congrats on all your growth and success of the blog. And for my listeners who haven't visited physicianonfire.com, it is the real deal. Like just for example, he has articles on how to do a backdoor Roth, which I would have had no clue about if it wasn't for his blog. Uh, he's got young kids. So he had a blog post recently about teaching your kids about money by using the, the bank of mom and dad, which I really enjoyed. And he also does book reviews where he's very candid. Even if he's writing a, a review for a buddy, like a, a buddy of his has written the book. Like for example, we have a mutual friend, Chad Carson, right? He wrote a book and if there was something that Physician on Fire didn't like about it, he told you. <laughs> and so that kind of candor is, is rare these days. And so I appreciate his book reviews too. So when I want to learn something personal finance related, I visit his blog first because if he hasn't written about it, a lot of times he's had a guest writer who has. So Leif, thank you for coming on the podcast, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a really uh, a fun conversation to have. Likewise. So I know I'll see you in California next year, but uh, now that you're in the fire ranks, maybe I'll see you somewhere even more exotic, huh? Yeah, who knows? We'll, we'll both be globetrotting. So I uh, hope to find you out there somewhere, somewhere around the globe. Where can people find you online? Well, you mentioned my website. Uh, an easy way to find it is type in pofire.com. The full length version is physicianonfire.com. I'm also pretty active on Twitter at physicianonfire. Uh, same thing on Facebook with a page and a couple of Facebook groups. Uh, one that's open to everyone that's called Fat Fire. Uh, that is a, kind of a fun group of, of people like you and me that spend maybe a little more than the average uh, FI person. So yeah, any uh, really any social media. I'm on Instagram as well at Physician on Fire. So uh, look me up. Sounds good. Listeners, thank you for joining us. I never take it lightly that you've chosen to spend your time with us. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share the link with a friend. Also, you can follow my adventures on Instagram and Twitter. I am at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks.